Well, for those of you who, who may have slipped in late after the introduction, the, uh, that, um, many, several men have gone off on the hiking trip up in wherever they went to. This is the traditional week for them to go, and they've been doing this for about 10 years, I guess, something like that. We also do have a women's hiking trip. It's a little earlier in the year, but if you, it's still late enough in the year you can still freeze if you're a woman in the woods, if that's you know, your thing. We have equal opportunities for that. Also, for about the last 10 years, because this is the traditional week of the men's hiking trip, it's also become a tradition that I get to preach on Christ the King Sunday, year after year after year. <laughs> what makes it worse is that this is my least favorite holy day of the year. I love our church calendar. I love the deep traditions of worshiping as the church has worshiped for thousands of years. Christ the King Sunday isn't even 100 years old. It was uh, proclaimed in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. Now I have as much respect for the popes as I would for any other Christian brother of mine, but I don't feel particularly bound to a calendar date set by a pope. The Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction in this realm. It's in the Articles of Religion, it's in the Book of Common Prayer, it's in the prayer book in your pew. You can look it up if you don't, don't think so. Um, and then to be more serious, I always do have to wrestle with the idea of Christ the King because I'm an American and the idea of having a head of state at least theoretically chosen by, by God who com commands births and deaths and those kind of things um, seems odd to me. I don't really connect to it. But here we are, Christ the King Sunday. The Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the Universe, the official title. You know, there are three special days in November. And these three special days echo back to a different time. And one of them is Christ the King Sunday. It was proclaimed just a few years after the end of World War I, specifically to remind Christians that their loyalty ultimately is not to a political power, to a military power, but to Christ. Explicitly, Pope Pius XI ordered this to be, sat, to be um, celebrated so that there would never be another terrible war like World War I. It didn't quite work as I know you know. But that was the purpose. Another special day in November that echoes back to a different time is what in America we call Veterans Day, what our British Canadian friends call uh, Remembrance Day, November 11th. That day chosen to bring an end to combat in World War I. It's almost um, a, a trivia thing today why November 11th was chosen and not November 10th or November 12th. That's because November 11th is St. Martin's Day. St. Martin is the patron saint of soldiers. And all parties in the conflict agreed that would be a suitable date to end the combat. Another special day, of course, is Thanksgiving, which I recently heard described as America's largest secular holiday. I was shocked. I'd never thought of it as a secular holiday. But apparently, that's what a lot of people think of it. Whom are they thanking? I mean, I don't read the presidential proclamations of Thanksgiving Day every year, but I've read some of them, and they're all thanking God for the blessings that we've experienced over the last year. Three special days in November that point to a different time, a different ethos in the Western world, and, and different assumptions 
different relationships between the kingdom of God, Christ's kingdom, and the political structures of the world. And I'd like to point out several factors of Christ's kingdom which are different from human kingdoms. And we can kind of trace this to the clash of two kingdoms that we see in the gospel reading this morning from John. The first thing to note about Christ's kingdom, which is different from human kingdoms, is that Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Kingdoms of the world rely on violence and force and physical coercion. They all do. But Jesus' kingdom is not of the world and not from the world. Jesus answered in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. You remember one of Jesus' friends, Peter, had tried to fight and Jesus had rebuked him and in fact healed the man who had come to arrest him. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus has a kingdom of peace. If my kingdom was of this world, my followers would be fighting for me. Compare this to Rome, the kingdom represented in person by Pontius Pilate. Even the story the Romans tell themselves begins with violence. According to the story they tell about themselves, Rome is founded by two brothers, Romulus and Remus. They're raised by a wolf and then they're found and adopted by a shepherd family, and the two brothers grow up, and they decide to build the city of Rome. But they get in a fight over which hill they're going to build the city on, and in a story very reminiscent of Cain and Abel, Romulus slays his brother Remus, and in the blood of his dead brother is built the city of Rome. The Romans realize something about themselves, you see. The legacy of Rome is a legacy of violence and war and combat. Julius Caesar becomes a household name because he slaughtered a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. First the Republic and then the Empire spread by force and combat and violence. And once it gained control, it held power by threats of violence. But Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Jesus' kingdom doesn't spread by people being coerced into proper belief, but people should be persuaded into proper belief. In Christ's kingdom, truth is not a function of power, which is the second thing that makes Christ's kingdom different than human kingdoms. That is, it's a kingdom of truth. In verse 37 of the reading, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And you may well remember Pilate's famous response, He says, what is truth? And he leaves the room. Human kingdoms have no interest in the truth, in true truth. In human terms, and it's been this way forever, whoever has the power has the truth. George Orwell's 1984 illustrates this dramatically. If you can apply enough psychological pressure to someone, you can get them to agree that two plus two equals five. Whoever has the power has the truth. A recent study of propaganda and the way that propaganda works concluded with an interesting result that propaganda doesn't really work, that it doesn't cause people who are, who are, who are flooded with propaganda to change their beliefs and to, uh, and to agree that what is false is true. What propaganda does is crush resistance by convincing people that they are the only ones who know the truth and it doesn't matter that the government is so powerful it can put out these lies and you think you're the only person who knows the truth and you feel isolated 
You wonder why everybody else believes all the stupid things the government says. Convince you that you're alone with the truth and you are the only one who knows the truth and so you better keep your mouth shut and don't talk to your neighbors. They'll think you're crazy. But Jesus says he's come to bring truth. That you're not all alone with truth, but Jesus says he's come to bring truth. Again, verse 37, I've come to bear witness to the truth and Pilate gives a cynical response, what is truth? It's not a sincere question. Pilate doesn't have a, a, a reputation as a great philosopher, but as a brutal politician. It's not a sincere question, but a, a dismissal. What is truth? Truth is whatever the people with power say. But Jesus is consumed with truth. Elsewhere in John's gospel, he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Elsewhere in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, then what he says must be crucial. And Jesus says, the truth shall set you free. Yet Jesus is here captive, standing before a man who can order his execution, waiting to be tortured, to be stripped, nailed to a cross, and die a disgraceful, humiliating death. Yet at that moment, no one has ever been more free than Jesus is because Jesus knew the truth. Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. Jesus was true to himself, and if we're going to be living in Jesus' kingdom, we don't need to be deceptive to other people, or especially to ourselves. Being truthful is more than just not lying. It's also living consistent with what you know to be true. Another reason why Christ's kingdom is different than human kingdoms is that Christ's kingdom is eternal, because earthly kingdoms all pass away. 400 years after this exchange between Jesus and Pilate, the city of Rome itself will be burned and uh, ravished by barbarian hordes and essentially abandoned for another several centuries. St. Jerome wrote, the city which has taken the world has been taken. It is tempting as we look at the increasing secularization of our society the rise of what are called the nuns, people who don't N-O-N-E-S, people who don't identify with any religion at all, with declining church attendance, where church attendance numbers are back where they were in the 1920s before the great revivals of the Depression and post-war years. It's tempting to look at this increasing secularization of our lives and to think of the day when presidential proclamations were made asking Americans to give thanks to God, where Nations at war agreed that the feast day of the patron saint of soldiers would be a good day to stop fighting. When a day is proclaimed in the church, proclaiming our ultimate loyalty is to Christ and not to warring political powers, makes that day seem far away. But don't be fooled. Christ's kingdom is growing. It's booming. The center of Christianity is shifting to what we call the global south, to East Asia, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America. The center of Christianity is shifting, but it's still growing. I heard recently that uh, we know there are more Christians in China than there are in America because there are more Christians in China than there are people in America. I ran the numbers, and I think that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not much of one if it is one. The church in China is growing. The church in China is one of the wonder stories of, of the missionary movement. The missionaries all got kicked out, and guess what happened? The church boomed. 
Christian missionaries had, had worked for centuries in China with very little result, but under persecution, the church is booming. Christ's kingdom is eternal and growing. The great kingdoms of the world are all either dead or dying because they always have. You know, it's kind of creepy to think about, but at some point, if the Lord tarries, people are going to be walking on the ground 60 or 70 feet above our heads every once in a while, digging up our stuff and being puzzled by it. And only the historians among them will remember there ever was a United States around here. It's kind of creepy to think about, but that's the way the world works, right? That even on that day, if the Lord tarries, Christ's kingdom will be around and growing until it becomes, and the fourth unique point, universal. Our reading from Daniel, this wonderful vision, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed, a kingdom of all peoples, nations, and languages. According to the story, Alexander the Great dies in tears because there's no more worlds left for him to conquer. All the dreams of world dominance collapse. But Christ rose from the dead to tell us that his kingdom continues and will continue until every knee shall bow to him. Christ's kingdom is ultimately victorious. Human utopian schemes always fail. There's the great dream that without God, we can build the kingdom of God here on earth, and those dreams all fall apart. But finally, and I think most interesting, Christ's kingdom is different from human kingdoms because it's a real adventure. From our reading in Revelation, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom. We're invited to be a part of this kingdom, Christ's coming kingdom in which the whole universe will be restored to the vision that God had of it when he created it, and even better. You remember at some point, probably, when you were younger and you thought you'd have great adventures in life? And now look at us, right? We thought we'd have, we'd have great adventures. We'd find a band of friends and we would be work together and we would bring good things around. Guess what? Christ's kingdom is that adventure. You can find a band of friends, work hard to bring about the most beautiful vision anyone can imagine. The whole universe restored to the way God, God designed it to be. All because we have a king who loves us freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. That's an adventure I want to be on, an adventure I invite you to join. In Jesus' name, amen.